Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Mo Money Podcast. This is episode 240, and I'm your host, Justin Morehouse. Welcome back to the show. Uh, last week, I had Preet. He was a repeat guest. He'd been, he was one of my first guests ever on the podcast when I started it. Oh my gosh. Almost five years ago, we're getting close to that anniversary date, but uh, I wanted to have another repeat guest because it's been a long time since I had Doug Hoyes on the show. He was actually last on the show. Let me check. Oh, episode 49, May 11th, 2016. Raise your hand or nod your head. I know you're alone, but you're listening to me and I will know because I have vibes. Let me know in your weird way of vibing with me that you did. You're a longtime listener and you know that episode. Okay, I've been alone way too much. I've been alone way too much. I need to get out of the house because I'm going a bit crazy. Anyways, I uh, certainly digressed. I have Doug Hoyes on the show. So back when he was on the show episode 49, um, he was on the show to really dive deep in and, and explain what's the difference between a consumer proposal and bankruptcy. What are some of your options if you're in a situation where you got a lot of debt and can't pay it back? Well, I have him back on the show because uh, a lot of things have changed since that first interview. First off, he has a book, an amazing book, very interesting, very different perspective. Uh, it's called Stray Talk on Your Money. I read the book, reread it because uh, it'd been so long since uh, I first read it when it came out. Uh, I was supposed to, honestly, honestly, I was supposed to have him on the show in 2018. So, and then I had to cancel because of a family emergency. And now, well, it's 2020. So I uh, made a bunch of notes and we talk about basically his book is all about debunking all these kind of uh, money myths or pieces of personal advice that we thought were true, but actually, maybe they're not. Or maybe we should think twice about that because personal finance is personal and it's not so black and white. Anyways, if you're not familiar with Doug, he's amazing. He also has his own podcast called Debt Free in 30. Definitely check that out. But he is uh, the co-founder and is a licensed insolvency trustee at Hoys Miklos, uh, which they are debt relief experts. So he his profession helps people that uh, are looking for some help because they're dealing with debt and again, cannot pay it back and they're looking for a solution for their issue. So uh, he is also a chartered professional accountant uh, and he's been in the biz for a long time. He's seen a lot of things in this time. I'm not calling him old. I am not. He's just very experienced. And so we're going to get into uh, all of this good stuff in this episode. But before I get to that, I just want to share a few important words about this episode's sponsor. This episode of the Mo Money Podcast is supported by Policy Me. Unsurprisingly, there has been a big spike in people getting life insurance policies recently. And although being in the middle of a pandemic isn't great, one silver lining is that a ton of Canadians are taking this as an opportunity to become more financially prepared for the future. So, what about you? Do you have life insurance? If you're single with no dependents or have built up enough savings to provide a sizable safety net on your own, then you actually don't need any. But if you do have dependents and or don't have enough assets or savings to take care of them when you're gone, then this is me telling you don't wait a minute longer to protect yourself and your family. Luckily, since most of us are still self-isolating at home, you don't have to go anywhere to get an insurance policy if you use Policy Me. They are a completely digital life insurance broker who can help you find out what kind of policy you need, compare quotes from Canada's top insurance carriers, and apply for an insurance policy online in under 10 minutes. 
To learn more and to find out the latest info about getting life insurance during these uncertain times, visit policyme.com slash momoney. Once again, visit them at policyme.com slash momoney. Well, welcome back to the show, Doug. It's been uh, actually the last time you were on the show was for episode 49. So you were in my, I believe that was my first ever season, May 11th, 2016. I remember it well and nothing has changed since then. So I don't know what we're going to talk about, but hopefully we can find something. Nothing has changed, huh? Yeah, you're right. Everything's exactly the same as it was. Now, uh, a lot has changed uh, since then. I obviously have wanted to get you back on the show. I feel like I've talked to everybody we both mutually know for the past several years. I'm like, I need to have Doug back on the show. And then I just never did just because I'm lazy. And then I'm like, you know what? I need to get Doug on the show because we have uh, some things to talk about. And also, I mean, a while ago now, you put out a book that I think is great called Straight Talk on Your Money, which I really liked because honestly, uh it's a very different take coming from someone with your background. And just, I mean, you know, I've read a ton of personal finance books and yours had a very different uh, perspective and I appreciated that. So well done. Well, thank you. And it was written from the perspective of, I've met with a whole bunch of people. Here's what I learned by meeting with those people. So it's not an academic journal. I probably wasn't using all the fancy words that I'm supposed to use, but uh, hopefully it, it spoke to a few people with some practical advice. No, and I felt that too. When I was reading, I'm like, it definitely feels like you're sharing your wisdom and your opinion, your perspective, because you've actually worked with a certain uh, type of people for your job. And I feel like a lot of people that put out books um, have never actually worked with people. (laughs) And that makes a big difference in terms of what kind of advice you're going to give, doesn't it? Yeah, I think you can see that. And obviously, there's a lot of books that, you know, how to build your wealth and how to invest in the stock market and things like that. Well, that's not my area of expertise. It's certainly not what I wrote a book about. I'm dealing with people who have severe financial trouble. So I've seen all the bad things that can happen. So it's certainly a a different perspective than a book that I guess Warren Buffett would write. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really liked it too that you wrote it in a way that you're kind of debunking or or sharing your perspective on different money myths or different uh, pieces of advice that I feel like a lot of us have just like assumed, oh, this is true because I heard it from somewhere and it's just been ingrained in my mind for years. And I really appreciated that. So I made a bunch of notes while uh, I was kind of going through your book uh, once again, because it's been a while since I first read it, um, that I thought we could uh, talk about. But before we do that, because we are still in a pandemic, uh, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you do have this background of helping people in uh, severe financial need, uh, people that are dealing with severe debt that are coming to you for help. Um, I thought you could kind of shed some light on what is your perspective of what's going on right now. I know before I hit the recording button, um, you've been seeing like even your own business has kind of changed. Can you kind of share a little bit about what what, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now? Sure. So, I mean, our company name is Hoys Michaels and Associates. We are licensed in insolvency trustees. So we are the people you come to when there is no other option for repaying your debt. If you can pay your debt off on your own, absolutely, that's what you should do. What a lot of people now, of course, are doing during the pandemic is talking to their bank and saying, hey, can you give me a break? Can I defer my mortgage payment? That sort of thing. So if you can do that, absolutely, that's what you should do. But if you get to the point where, well, I've got $50,000 worth of debt and I'm only bringing in two or 3000 bucks a month and there's no way I'm ever going to be able to pay it back, then you come to us and we talk to you about various options, including a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. So you would think, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic 
and people are not working. I mean, we've got the highest unemployment in Canada now that we've probably had in decades. And so if I don't have any money coming in, I guess I can't pay my debt. So therefore, I guess I need to go bankrupt. Well, no. In fact, the reason someone would consider a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy is not just because they have a lot of debt, but it's also because I don't want to have the collection calls. I don't want to have my wages garnished. So I need protection from my creditors. Well, if you're not working, your wages aren't going to be garnished. And as we're recording this, the courts are closed in Ontario and pretty much all over North America. So it's highly unlikely anyone's going to take you to court and sue you and garnish your wages because the courts are closed. So the collection agencies are still making some phone calls, but it's at a dramatically reduced rate. A lot of the collection agencies work out of big call centers where people are jammed in little tiny cubicles, you know, floor after floor. Well, guess what? With physical distancing, none of those places are operating from where they used to. It's very difficult for them to deploy all of their collection agents to home. I mean, we're talking secure information here. You can't be... I mean, a collection agency, if they have more than 10 collectors, must record every phone call. Well, it's kind of hard to work from home and do that on your cell phone. You've got to have a phone system you can patch through a, a VPN or a VoIP system or whatever. So all of the pressure that the immediate pressure that is on people with a lot of debt isn't there right now. They don't have the wages to garnish you. The courts are closed. The collectors aren't calling as much. So as a result, there is less of an urgency to reach out to someone like me to file a consumer proposal or bankruptcy. So my guess is when all the numbers are in, and it takes a few months for the the government to release all the numbers, but my guess is that the number of personal insolvencies, consumer proposals and bankruptcies filed in Canada in the months of April and May 2020 will probably be down 50% from what they were a year ago. And then I think they will, you know, gradually creep back up. And it's very possible that by the fall, if that's when the world is, is back in operation, the numbers will be quite a bit higher because of the, the pent up demand. So that's kind of the, the order of battle that we're seeing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually kind of, it's, it's interesting because I, I would have thought, I'm like, oh, your business must be booming. But like you said, that, that makes actually a lot of sense. Have you ever seen or experienced, because you've been doing this a long time, anything like this in your career? Are you saying I'm old, Jessica? No, I'm not. Um, I'm just saying you're you're seasoned. You're experienced. The, well, I, I am old. <laughs> and no, I haven't seen anything like this. The The last big peak we had was the credit crisis that happened in 2008. And that was very, you know, it was bigger in the U.S. than in Canada for various structural reasons. I mean, in, in many states in the United States, if you don't pay your mortgage while well, you just walk away, the bank sells the house, but that's it. They're called no recourse mortgages. Whereas in Canada, if you walk away and there's a shortfall, well, they can come after you. So we are much less likely to, to walk away from our houses here. We refinance and, and live to fight another day. But it was still pretty bad back then. The busiest month for us was September of 2009. So the credit crisis really hit in 2008. But for various reasons, there's always a time lag. The government also tweaked some of the rules. So September 2009 was the the busiest month we ever had. And we did not hit that level of busyness again until last year. So we went a decade, almost a decade, where the number of personal insolvencies filed in Canada was actually dropping year after year after year as the economy improved and you know interest rates fell and, and we were more able to handle all the debt we had. So no, I've never seen anything like this. And in fact, this is different than then because 
If you look at a chart of a, the age of the population, in 2009, the, the, the bulge of the baby boomers was about 44 years old. In other words, the most common age back then was 44. Well, guess what the most common age historically has always been to file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal? Well, about 44, you know, mid 40s, because you're old enough to have accumulated debt. You may still have kids that you're supporting. Your parents may not you know, may still be around and you may be helping to support them. You maybe haven't received an inheritance yet, but you're not the president of the company yet. So you're not in your peak earning years. Those are kind of your peak debt years. And that also hit in 2009. So the, those 44 year olds, 10 years later, 12 years later, obviously you're a bit older. So I don't think it's going to be the same. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we're seeing, you know, more millennials and younger people now who are getting into trouble for various reasons we can discuss, but um, it's, it, it is different this time. This was certainly a much more sudden shock as well. So it's very difficult to predict how things are going to shake out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Since you mentioned millennials, what's going off millennials? <laughs> they are more likely to get into debt than they were in the past. And I think, I mean, everybody who listens to the work you've done will have a very good understanding of why. I mean, as an old guy, when I went to university in the 1980s, and yes, we had mm-hmm. universities back then. <laughs> um, we, you know, my tuition at the University of Toronto was a thousand bucks a year. And so I was able to get a summer job making minimum wage and earn enough to pay my tuition and to pay for my books. My parents helped out with living costs, bing, bang, boom, no need for a student loan. Well, my son is currently at the University of Toronto, and I can tell you that tuition is a lot more than a thousand bucks a year. If you're in a, you know, an advanced program, nursing, engineering, something like that, you're looking at more like sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars a year for tuition. And then when you add in books and living costs and so on, it's a lot more than that. There is no way that you can get a summer job and earn enough to pay your way through university. It is not mathematically possible unless you're, I don't know, playing for the Toronto Raptors during the summer. And, and of course, they're not playing either at the moment. So it's it's just not possible. So you you graduate from university unless your parents were able to pay for everything you're graduating with a student loan and it is very common for people to be graduating with a student loan of 10 20 30 40 50,000. So younger people today are starting out behind the eight ball. They're starting out with debt. I didn't start out with debt. I started out even. Now, the first job I got working for a big accounting firm, you know, I made 20,000 bucks a year, but I didn't have any debt. Living costs were a lot less. I didn't have to to uh, to worry about it. Today, I graduate from university. I've got this massive amount of student loan debt. The job situation may not be such that I can immediately parachute into a fantastic job. I may end up having to be an intern. I may have to do the gig economy, uh, piece together a few different jobs. So what do I do? Well, I end up having to resort to credit just to pay the bills, just to pay the rent. So it's not uncommon for millennials to also have payday loans, to also have credit card debt, because they're trying to scrape together enough to service their student loan debt and survive. And as a result, debt becomes a a serious problem. So as a result, we are now seeing more younger people, people in their you know, late 20s, in their 30s, early 40s, getting into financial trouble as well, 
to an extent that we've never seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that all rings true. And that sounds exactly like all the conversations I have with the millennials and I guess the the younger generation too. It's it's so much more expensive to to live. And it's hard now too, I feel like having conversations with people, especially the situation we're in, where it's like, for me, uh, I had a, a very little student loan debt. So I was able to kind of crush that quickly. I was unemployed for a while, didn't earn a, a ton of money when I was employed, but I was able to get a second job and have a side hustle. And I can't really say that to anyone listening right now. It's like, just get a side hustle. Don't be lazy. Earn money. It's like, you literally have to stay home right now. <laughs> so it's like, it's just, I, I feel I feel for everyone going through it right now and kind of uh, probably shaking their head yes to everything that you said. Because yeah, it's tough. It is not an easy time to be alive right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what are the side hustles going to be later on in 2020? So, um, I mean, the, the food delivery, uh, apps and places have done well during the pandemic, but now they're even realizing there's some, you know, margin pressures and you can't really have a whole lot of unlicensed workers without that potentially causing issues as well. So those side hustles perhaps become, uh, uh, you know, less viable. And, and if I can't afford to keep my car, then maybe I can't afford to keep driving for Uber. So that side hustle isn't there either. So it's, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. I think as we readjust to the new normal, there's, there's almost no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think it's definitely going to be a different world when we get out of this. I don't know what that looks like, but uh, having gone through one market crash and recession, I, I'm, I've never really felt like super stable. So I'm not too bothered. Like I'm like, well, it's always been kind of up and down <laughs> since I graduated university. So what else is new? But uh, for people that are just graduating university, this is not the best. This is kind of a, a crappy time. I feel you. I graduated. 2009. It sucks. But uh, I will say it does get better. It does get better as you get older and you do build wealth and start taking, you know, some good advice like you share in your book, which I found very helpful. And again, like a unique perspective. I I really like just some of the things that you um, mentioned it. So I kind of want to dive into that right now. Um, So myth number two that you share, which I think is not talked about enough, is the idea that it is your fault, whatever your financial situation is. And maybe that's because a lot of the books that I read early on um, in the you know, personal finance world really had this tone of, you know, and I get it. It's like, take personal responsibility. Absolutely. But also this kind of, well, you did this to yourself and now you have to dig yourself out, which I guess that is like a form of like tough love. That's a certain strategy, but for a lot of younger people, I know that strategy does not work. And I like that you talk about it. it's not necessarily your fault because sometimes things are beyond your control. Like number one, this pandemic, it's not your fault if you lost your job because of the pandemic. It's a pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's easy for someone who's 50 or 60 years old to say, well, you know, when I was a boy, when I was a girl, it, uh, you know, I didn't need a student loan. You know, why can't you pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps? Well, because it is different now. And you're absolutely right. I think the pandemic, if there is a silver lining to this horrible event, is that it has opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that stuff does happen. And how many people have a really big emergency fund? Uh, you know, well, the Canada, the, the savings rate in Canada is essentially zero. And I don't think it's because we are lazy or bad people. I think it's because the average person is bringing in 2500 bucks a month and it costs 2500 bucks a month to live. 
And so there is no ability to to be saving money. And as a result, we don't have savings. And frankly, why would you save money when interest rates are close to zero? We have all been conditioned to believe that savings is uh, a line of credit, which is ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Debt is not savings. But why would I save money and put it in a bank account and earn half of 1% when I've got a line of credit sitting there where the interest rate's only 3 or 4%? That's my emergency fund if I need it. Now, of course, we are now realizing that banks can stop the emergency fund. Um, they, can, they can cancel lines of credit. So it isn't an emergency fund. But yeah, there are circumstances that are often beyond our control. So I think that we as human beings should do what we can to take care of ourselves. I think we should work hard. I think we should learn. I think we should study. I think we should do all those things. I think we should help our friends and family. But I also think stuff happens. And so the trick is to understand what can I control? What can I not control? Change the things I can control. And don't get all hot and bothered about things that you can't control. You can't control the weather. So whining about the fact that it's raining isn't going to do you any good. Absolutely. And even for the people I've been having lots of conversations with um, others and even some other, you know, money experts uh, I'm friends with in the States. And, you know, in the past, they like used to say, oh, I used to tell people have at least a thousand dollars as your, you know, base emergency fund. And now they're like, I can't believe I said that because that's not enough because look at us now, a thousand dollars isn't going to get you far. And even if you do have like the typical, like have three months saved up for your emergency fund, but what if we're going to be all unemployed or out of work for longer than three months? These are things that we couldn't have foreseen because this is a, again, a situation that we didn't, you know, foresee and it's not our fault. And so it's, it's, it's difficult, but I, I like what you said. It's like, we, we can take responsibility for what we can control, but also remember, it's not your fault for the things you can't. Yep, it's and I guess we will see how our attitudes change going forward. And um, you know, I don't know what the lessons will be because it's too early to tell. But uh, I suspect by the fall, when we look back, then yeah, there will be there will be a lot of changes to the conventional wisdom. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. Lots of questions I've been getting, and it's interesting too because there's there's people that are there's so many different situations going on right now. There's the people that um, are still working and earning an income. They're still worried because most likely they're they're you know maybe healthcare workers or uh, grocery store workers. Like they're on the front lines and they are at risk, and so they're kind of freaked out for like, what if there is a point where I can't work? I'm not ready for that. And then there's the people that are currently out of work and they're like, I've never really taken a look at my finances. What do I do? So there's a lot of different situations to think about. But one question I've been getting a lot is um, for people that are currently still working and they're like, oh no, I'm, I'm pretty stable in terms of my work, but they have some debt. They don't really know what should I, should I take some traditional advice of, you know, paying my smallest debt first or my most expensive debt first, or is there other things that I should take a look at? I know in your book, you talked a lot about, um, and I, I thought this was interesting, thinking about it in a different way, thinking about what are your different types of debts? What are your secured debts, your callable debts? And maybe thinking about those should maybe be your kind of priority debts first, not just always ultimately paying off your smallest debt first. You want to kind of explain what you meant in that part? Yeah. So I think the way to think about it is if I don't pay that debt, what will happen? Okay. So if I don't pay my car loan, what will happen? Well, eventually they'll come and take my car. If I don't pay my mortgage, eventually they'll come and take my house. So that is a secured debt, but I guess, you know, not quite a callable debt in the, in the way that we're discussing it. I mean, a callable debt is the bank can change their mind at any time. 
So if you have a five-year mortgage and make all your payments, the bank isn't going to change anything over five years. If you have a line of credit, as a lot of people are discovering in 2020, I've got a $10,000 line of credit at the bank and the interest rate is 4%. Well, there's no reason the bank can't just immediately change the interest rate to 9%. And I've seen it happen because the bank, most banks will do a soft hit on your credit report on a regular basis. So I know one of the big banks, a VP told me that, yeah, we do a soft hit on all of our clients, all of our customers' credit reports every three months, once a quarter. And if their situation has changed considerably, they've got a lot more debt, well, we may turn down the tap. We may increase the interest rate on their line of credit or their credit card. We may reduce their authorized borrowing limit. That $10,000 line of credit might become 5000 So a lot of things can, can change. So the question to ask yourself is, if I don't pay it, what could happen? So obviously, if you don't pay your credit card, the interest rate is very high. So all else being equal... If I have money to pay down debt, I would probably be starting with my highest interest rate debt because I'm going to have the greatest savings. But I understand the psychological impact. Well, I only owe a hundred bucks on that credit card. Why don't I just pay it off, even if it's a low interest credit card? Because it's one less thing that I, I have to pay. So you got to understand how your own brain works too. It doesn't matter what I would do. What would you do? I think we should consider all the options and then make a decision that works for you. So you may decide, you know what, that car is critically important to me. I couldn't afford to lose it. I need it for my job. So I'm going to make sure I get that paid off as quick as possible. Other people might say, hey, look, it's a low interest rate loan. I'm not going to pay that off as quickly. Well, okay, what makes the most sense for you? And that's how you ultimately make the decision. Yeah, no, I think that's really great advice. Because <laughs> uh, honestly, nothing is one size fits all. And you really do have to take a look at what makes the most sense for you and then just do it. And I know there's another section in your um, book that I thought was interesting too, is uh, myth number nine, cash in your RSP to pay off debt. You explain why that is not a good idea. And I, I completely agree. But I think that, again, there's a lot of this uh, like traditional advice or things that we've read in books or articles about how you need to pay off debt, whatever means possible, even if it means taking your cash, taking your investments to pay off debt, because debt is bad. Do you want to kind of talk about what you mean by don't cash in your RSP to pay off debt? Well, and yes, compared to not having debt, debt is bad. I agree. But if you, and I'm not saying you should never cash in an RSP to pay off debt. I'm saying you should consider what the situation is. So I'll have people come in to see me. And the typical person who ends up filing with us might have forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 worth of unsecured debt, credit cards, bank loans, income taxes, payday loans, that sort of thing. So people will come in and they'll say to me, yeah, I tried to stay ahead of it. Last year, I cashed in my RSP for $10,000. And yet here you are. Well, yeah, because when I cashed it in at the bank, I did it in small increments. So they only withheld 10% withholding. But when I filed my taxes, I had to include the entire 10000 as income, which, of course, I am now paying taxes at whatever my marginal tax rate is. So they withheld 10% when I took it out because I did it in small pieces. But now I end up owing 30% tax. So I, I owe an extra couple of grand, three grand, whatever it is in taxes. And I didn't solve the problem. I Now I don't have the RSP, but I've still got a big chunk of debt. If you file bankruptcy in Canada, you only lose whatever you've put into your RSP in the last year. So if you had an RSP through work or you've been contributing for a long time, then 
it is exempt from seizure, whatever's been there for more than a year. So if you're filing bankruptcy anyways, or more likely you're filing a consumer proposal to make a negotiated settlement on your debt, why would you give up an asset that you get to keep and end up paying a whole lot of taxes on it? You may be better off coming up with a a, a different option. So again, that's why I'm always telling people, come in and talk to us first before you start making, um, you know, rash decisions because there may be a, a better way to deal with with it. I, I talked to a guy this morning who got a call from a collection agent yesterday and the collection agent convinced him to e-transfer 4,000 bucks to them. And I said, ooh, uh, I wish you had called me yesterday because you still owe them $20,000. So you've now given them your last 4,000. What did you accomplish by doing that? And that's kind of the same concept. I cashed in some of my RSP. Now I don't have the RSP, but I still owe the debt. So I think if you talk to a professional and understand what the different options are, you may actually be able to keep your RSP and still and still deal with the debt. Mm-hmm. What do you say to people that maybe um, have never done this before, have never talked to a professional like yourself, and are like kind of concerned or, or worried about doing a consumer proposal or bankruptcy? Because again, there's like some negativity around it, being like it's the easy way out, or uh, oh, you know, you're a failure for having to do that. What What do you say to people that may have some some preconceived notions about those two things? Well, okay, so I've got a cavity. Am I a failure if I go talk to my dentist? No, yeah, no. <laughs> my, I got a flat tire. My oil needs changed. Am I a failure? I mean, stuff happens, right? So what, what I say to people is, what's the alternative? Okay, so if you don't come and talk to me, what's your plan? Well, let's see. My minimum payments are $1,000 a month. And so every month I pay the 1000 and I still owe the same amount. And if I keep doing this for 20 years, my debt will be exactly the same. Okay, well, now we've got a baseline then. Now, yes, you're right. If you come in and see me and we end up deciding to file a consumer proposal, there will be a note on your credit report that says you filed a consumer proposal. And it is quite likely if you've been keeping up with all your payments by borrowing from one to pay the other, that when you file the consumer proposal, your credit score will go down. But all of your debt is also going to go down. And now instead of paying $1,000 a month in minimum payments, maybe the consumer proposal is, I don't know, two or 300 bucks a month. And maybe instead of paying for the next 20 years, you're paying for the next five years or you get it paid off in two or three years. And then you have no debt. And now you can start to rebuild and reestablish. So what don't compare a proposal or a bankruptcy to perfection because that's not what you're comparing it to. Compare it to what your other alternatives are. And if the other alternatives are worse, then it's a a pretty simple, uh, simple decision. When people come in to see us, there is no upfront fee because the law says, I'm, I'm licensed by the federal government to do this, and the law says I am not allowed to charge anything until you have actually signed the paperwork and started the process. So it doesn't, it doesn't cost anything to talk to us. And, you know, you get a feel for whether our advice makes sense in your situation or not. And then you can decide whether you move forward. So there's no risk to talking to us. If your current situation is untenable, 
then you might as well find out what the other options are because it may end up being you know, very much in your benefit to take action. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear also from people that they're either very concerned about the impact on their credit scores or uh, they are concerned that kind of going with the, the, again, the idea that this is the easy way out that they may not learn or maybe not so much people that go through it, but other people that have never gone through it and are a bit judgmental will think that um, going through a bankruptcy or consumer proposal, well, they're not going to learn anything from they're just going to go back to their old ways i mean you work with so many professionals uh, or not professional so many clients um what do you see after they've done a consumer proposal or bankruptcy has their you know habits changed after going through the process well the vast majority of people are better off you're right there are some people who just get back into debt again either you know willfully or through no fault of their own the people who are most successful are the people who say okay stuff happened and maybe it was my fault, maybe it wasn't. And one of the things we try to do is get to the bottom of what actually happened. Oh, there was a pandemic. Okay, well, that probably wasn't caused by you. So and it's hopefully not going to reoccur in the same situation again. But if it does, what steps are you going to take? I'm going to have some emergency savings. I'm going to keep my debt low, whatever. Well, you're able then to rebuild and, and get back on track. So, I mean, as you know, there are two um, insolvency counseling sessions, what we used to call credit counseling sessions as part of the bankruptcy and consumer proposal process. So we actually are required by law to help you figure out what your financial goals are going forward. Let's actually think about it. And my goal is not just to stay alive for another month. My goal is I'd like to start saving for retirement for my kid's education to buy a house, whatever. And once people start thinking about the future, well, it's a lot easier then to make changes in the present because small changes today can have big impacts tomorrow. So if you take the process seriously, you are a lot better off. And again, I don't play the blame game. I mean, to say that it's the easy way out, well, I guess compared to making minimum payments of $1,000 a month for the twenty next 20 years and never being able to buy a house, never being able to get married, never being able to have a kid, yeah, I guess that's easier. But, you know, so what? Getting the dentist to fill my tooth and then I don't have the pain of the cavity is also the easy way out. But nobody would say not to do that. So I think ultimately you're the boss. You get to decide what is uh, in your best interests. And in a lot of cases, yes, you are better off by taking concrete action. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One thing uh, I also, uh, before I forget, want to talk to you about, because I really enjoyed the section of your book, was um, what to do when you are dealing with a collection agency. Um, I've been privileged in that. I've never had to deal with one personally, but um, I think a lot of people, because you, you kind of mentioned, you know, they can be aggressive. Um, they can also you know, say, like, you need to pay us. What are some things that people should know in advance? How should they act if they are dealing with a collection agency? What should they do and not do? I believe in profanity, Jessica. I think that is that is absolutely the answer. Whatever swear words you know, you should use. Well, well, no. I mean, a, a collection agent has a job to do, and they are probably calling you because you actually owe the money. So, step number one: when a collection agent calls you, make sure that it's legit. You actually do owe the money. You know, maybe you did pay it. Maybe it's you know someone with a similar name. Whatever. 
by law, certainly here in Ontario, but the, basically the same laws throughout North America, a collection agent, when they call you for the first time, has to give you evidence that they are who they say you they are and they are collecting for whomever they're collecting for. So they can do that by sending you a letter, by sending you an email, whatever. So let's establish that it's actually legit. You owe the money and they're entitled to collect it. Then the next step is, okay, am I able to pay it? If it's an old cell phone bill from a year ago that you just forgot to pay and you've got the cash, then pay it. Like there's nothing really to talk about. But most people who are getting a call from a collection agent are getting a call because they couldn't pay the debt. And it's very likely that they also have other debts that other collection agents are going to be contacting them about. So again, you got to look at the big picture here. I'm a big believer in getting a pencil and a piece of paper and writing down all the different places you owe money to. Mm-hmm. If you're like fancy pants and could do it on a spreadsheet, great. <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, a piece of paper works as well. And look at the the size of the problem. If it's a manageable situation, then the next step with the collection agent is to work out some kind of payment arrangement. And certainly while we're in a pandemic, the first thing I'd be saying to the collection agent is, hey, can you freeze the interest? Let's at least stop the bleeding here. And then the next thing I would be saying is, okay, depending on the age of the debt, the older the debt is, the easier it is to make a deal because the collection agent is much more willing to deal. So, okay, how about we make a deal where I pay back half of it or you know, whatever the percentage is. But you can only make a deal that you can actually do. So you, sh- you should never promise something that you can't do. So if the collection agent wants you to send them a good faith payment of 300 bucks and you've only got 100 bucks, well, don't agree to, to pay the 300. So what is realistic in the situation? Now, it's also a good idea to understand how the law works. So, and again, the, the rules are slightly different in, in the different provinces and states, but in Ontario, we have something called the Limitations Act, which says that if you're going to sue someone, you have to do it within two years. So if I stopped paying my credit card bill four years ago and they haven't done anything, they're not allowed to sue me now. And so threatening to sue you now is probably an idle threat because if they did sue you, you would show up in court and you'd say to the judge, hey, judge, it's been more than two years, the case would get thrown out. So you want to understand what your your rights are. Um, and again, here in Ontario, during the pandemic, that two-year period has been extended for as long as the pandemic lasts. So it may end up being a two-year and three-month period, but Um, collection agents will do what they can to collect. That's their job. Most of them are generally reasonable people. I mean, if they start swearing at you or saying you're going to go to jail, then just hang up the phone. You don't have to put up with any of that nonsense. But in most cases, they get some kind of commission or compensation for collecting from you. So they, they want to collect. You can generally make a better deal if you're able to offer a lump sum. So if you owe 10,000 bucks on an older debt and you say, hey, look, my mother is willing to loan me 2,000 bucks, will you take it? Well, they may actually be willing to take it. Now, of course, you want to get them to send you a letter or an email or something saying, yes, if you pay 2,000, that's full and final settlement and we're never coming after you again. But again, what are you able to do? Don't promise anything you can't do. If it's something that's manageable, then by all means, make an arrangement to pay them. If it's a massive amount of debt and there's four other collection agents who are going to be calling you next, 
then probably a more robust solution like a consumer proposal is a better option for you. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, so helpful <laughs> for you to kind of share all that information. Because honestly, I haven't read a lot of books that really go in depth with lots of those things because they don't really, I feel like, talk about them. and may Or maybe they just don't have the kind of specialized uh, experience that you do. So I appreciate you sharing all that, which is why I feel like everyone should grab a copy of your book because it has, honestly, it was very, like I've said it before, unique. It just had different perspective. And you, you went in depth on things that I haven't found a lot of other personal finance books did. And I appreciated that. Excellent. Well, and again, that's why I wrote it. There's There are fewer books that talk a little bit more from the debt end than from the how to invest in the stock market end. So if you have issues with debt or want to make sure you don't, or if you have you know friends, family members who do, it's not a book about debt, but obviously you're right. That's where my experience lies. So that's where a lot of the, the content came from. Yeah. And just like different ways to think. It really got me to think about different scenarios because I think lots of us kind of are, are very focused on like our situations, but y- you can't judge someone else for their situation. Like you had a part of your book where um, there's this girl who kind of did everything right, but uh, she got into debt because she got into a car accident and all these other kind of um, things happened that were again, kind of beyond her control. And it's, I think sometimes we forget that it's not everything's in our control. And I think that's, I mean, what we're going through right now is a a very big reminder of that. So we need to, we need to be kinder to people and less judgmental, I'd say. Yeah, I totally agree. Stuff happens. That's, that's just the way life is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks for taking the time to join me. I know, so obviously you have your book, Straight Talk on Your Money, but you also have an amazing podcast that you have on all the podcast platforms and YouTube. What's it called? Where can people find it? Uh, debt free in 30. And yes, I think if you punch it in, it, it shows up anywhere. So obviously we talk, you know, more about issues related to debt. We're not doing a whole lot of stuff on investing or not, but I mean, I've, I've got episodes on exactly what you and I just talked about, how to talk to a collection agent, for example. So you can scroll through the list and, uh, listen to what is appealing to, to what you want to hear. Amazing. Amazing. And if anyone wants to follow you, cause I know you're on social media, can you, can people find you? Can people follow you? Oh, uh, yes. The uh, If you want to call me uh, uh, on Twitter, it's my name, Doug Hoys, D-O-U-G-H-O-Y-E-S. And that's, uh, I don't understand how all the other things work. I'm not a Facebook guy or anything like that. So uh, Twitter is generally the uh, the place to go. Fabulous. Well, thanks so much, uh, Doug, for taking the time to chat with me once again. It was too long. I won't wait, you know, that long again to have you back on the show. Another four years. Great. Thanks, Jessica. I look forward to it. And that was episode 240 with Doug Hoyes. Make sure to check him out. Uh, His website is hoyes.com, H-O-Y-E-S.com. Again, he's the co-founder of Hoyes Miklos um, and is a licensed insolvency trustee. So if you have some questions or if you need some help, uh, he's probably the person to ask. And as he mentioned in the show, uh, it's free to talk to him to, you know, have that first kind of consultation. They don't charge any money. So there's no... uh, Really downside, I guess, in asking some questions or just, you know, hitting him up. Um, also, he has this amazing podcast called Debt Free and 30. You can find it on any podcast platform. Also uh, on YouTube, so make sure to check that out. And lastly, grab a copy of his book. It is Great Straight Talk on Your Money. 
go get a copy, read it. It's very fascinating. It was it was interesting an interesting read for me as someone who's read a lot of personal finance books to get a very different perspective because he does have a different perspective because he works with uh, certain clients and has seen a lot of things and uh, has probably dealt with a lot of different uh, situations that maybe other people haven't. So grab a copy of that. Um, I have a few important things I want to share with you. So stick around. I just have a few words I want to share about this episode's sponsor. This episode of the Mo Money Podcast is supported by Policy Me. We're experiencing some uncertain times. I hope you're doing okay during these uncertain times. I can't wait until these uncertain times are over. Any of these phrases sound familiar? Because I swear I hear uncertain times at least five times per day, which doesn't help trying to stay calm and not feel like everything is out of your control. Listen, I know we're in some uncertain times, there it is again, but the truth is there are some things we can control. And right now is actually the best time to take a good look at where you're at financially and do something about it. This includes making sure you and your family are properly protected with life insurance. But not just any life insurance, the right policy for you for the best price, which is why PolicyMe has so many good reviews from past customers. Trusted by over 35,000 Canadians, they've helped their customers save on average $46 per month on life insurance by comparing quotes from the leading life insurance providers as your online broker. The best part? They are completely digital, which means you can get quotes and apply for a policy entirely online in minutes from the safety of your own home. They also have human advisors to help you understand your needs, but they are non-commissioned and won't pressure you into buying anything. If you aren't sure whether or not life insurance is right for you, take their free five-minute life insurance checkup to find out how much coverage you need or don't need. To learn more and find out the latest info about getting life insurance during these uncertain times, visit policyme.com slash mo money. Once again, check them out at policyme.com slash mo money. All righty, Roo. Okay, so uh, things to share with you. I've got always some things to share with you. Um, as of this recording, it is Monday, May 11th. Um, and uh, what do we got to share with you? Well, number one, if you aren't already in it, I've got a free Facebook group called the Money Life Balance Group. I've had it for goodness. How long? Three, four years? Five years? I don't even know. A long time. And uh, there's a lot of us in there and it's a great place to ask questions, share important articles to help other people, uh, get some other people's kind of point of view or advice. It's just a really good positive space, online space. So if you want to be part of a, a online community about personal finance and empowering yourself and, um, you know, there's always good people in there, hop on in there at facebook.com slash group slash money life balance is uh, where you can find that. Also, to keep in the loop of everything I'm up to, and I'm up to a bunch of things, um, you can make sure to get onto my email list, jessicamorehouse.com slash subscribe. I also have a free resource library uh, available to anyone who does subscribe to my email list. Um, it's jessicamorehouse.com slash resources to find more information about how to make an account and get in there. But I have a bunch of you know freebie guides um, and uh, my budget spreadsheet, a couple past webinars, a bunch of things. I'm probably going to have to update it or add some new things 
fresh things in there, but uh, that's on the list. There's a lot of things on the list and that's one of the things on the list. Um, other things I got going on. Well, if you're interested in getting some one-on-one uh, financial counseling help, I can help you with that. Still accepting clients. Um, more information on why my website or just go to jessicamorehouse.com slash discovery call to uh, book a call with me. I also have my two financial online courses that I've been getting a lot more students for, which is great because, I mean, this is pretty much a great time to really start thinking about your finances and, you know, fixing some stuff, making a plan so you feel more in control in these times where you feel out of control. And I feel you, I really, really, really do. Uh, So I have my Fix Your Finances Masterclass. It goes through pretty much everything to help you create a solid financial foundation for yourself. And if you want to learn more about investing, because maybe you're like, I think I want to use a robo-advisor. I've listened to a lot of Jessica's episodes, but I still have a lot of questions. Well, that's why I made a course for it because there's a lot to know. This is called Investing Foundations for Canadians. It is specifically for Canadians. Americans have taken it, but it really just goes more in depth about like, you know, RSPs and TFSAs and all that kind of stuff. So uh, make sure to check that out, jessicamorehouse.com slash courses. And since I mentioned my budget spreadsheet, in case you don't know, uh, I've recently did a big overhaul of my free budget spreadsheet, made a new uh, video tutorial that is uh, visible on my YouTube channel. But if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash budget, you can download my new budget spreadsheet that includes a spending tracker it includes a net worth tracker um and the video tutorial goes through all of it it is so much nicer and cleaner and easier to follow i think you'll really really like it but uh, of course i've had a lot of people download it said they really really liked it um so you know i guess it's doing its thing and it's free so might as well so again if you want to get your money together one great way is to uh, start making a budget and start tracking your spending and tracking your net worth. And here's a personal story on why it is so important to track your spending because there's so many people who are like, oh, it's not that important. Here's why it's important, okay? I track my spending every single month. And recently, as I was looking at my April spending, I saw I saw a payment. I'm like, what? what is that? That's actually been, that payment's been for March and February and I never really took much uh I I really didn't pay attention to it. I'm just like, well, I think that's this other program that I subscribe to. No, no, no. What happened was I signed up to this thing and it was a free trial and I thought I canceled it. Honestly, I I honestly think I did because I've signed up for this program before or or this company that has a bunch of programs and I've canceled and then they didn't cancel. Like it's a scam. I swear it's not like they're, they're not a scam. It's just like, I don't know. It's just weird that this happened several times. Anyways, long story short, signed up for a free trial and I had to pay and I paid three months and I didn't really notice until now. Then I'm like, wait, wait a minute. What is that? And then I actually investigated it and yeah, it never canceled. So that was uh, annoying, but the story is if I didn't track my spending, I would have never noticed that for like a good year and would have been paying $30 a month for this thing that I'm not even using. So story, moral of the story, tracking your spending. It does, it does really, really help. So there you go. Okay. That is it for me. I will be back soon. I'll definitely be back next Wednesday. We'll see if I have another money minute episode for Friday. It really depends on if there's anything I want to share. And if I want to, I've been very busy lately. So I just haven't, I just didn't have time last week. So we'll see. We'll see. I might be here Friday. I may not. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but if you want to keep in the loop with what I'm up to, you know, check me out on the gram. <laughs> on the gram. Do people say that anymore? Does that show my age? Probably. Um, but you can find me at Jessica I. Morehouse, or I made a recent uh, new podcast Instagram at Mo Money Podcast. Not a lot on there yet, but I'm going to be putting some stuff on there. But you can follow me on uh, both or one of them or whatever. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll see you very soon. Have a good rest of your day.
This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.